Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. This is Dr. Hassan Galadari from the United Arab Emirates University, and this interview is part of Dialogues in Dermatology's Career Launch podcast series, where the topic is going to be adding a skill to your repertoire or even product to your practice. And with me today is none other than Dr. Leslie Bauman, who is world-renowned with regard to the use of uh, cosmeceuticals. She is well-versed dermatologist and a scientist. And what we're going to be discussing today is going to be on why we should love selling or even using cosmeceuticals. Leslie, how are you? I'm doing great. It's good to talk to you. Same here, same here. So Leslie, tell me a little bit about yourself. You are very well versed in the subject, but you know, I want my listeners to really get a grasp of who you are. Okay. When I was growing up, I loved to read business books. And so I always was a fan of Elizabeth Arden and Estee Lauder and Helena Rubenstein because they were really the first female CEOs. So before I was even old enough to care about makeup, I was already interested in them as businesswomen. So then when I went into dermatology, I thought at first I was going to be a pediatric dermatologist because I had eczema and I was very interested in the skin barrier and moisturizers. But somewhere along the way, I decided I wanted to do cosmetic dermatology. So really, I've been interested in cosmeceuticals forever. And because I'm from Texas and grew up wearing a lot of makeup, that probably helped. If you ever come to my office, I have my office is like a museum to the cosmetic industry. And I have these huge 10 foot vinyl ads of cosmetic advertisements over the decades. In my waiting room, I have all these different vintage skincare products that all have a story. So I've just always been very passionate about cosmeceuticals. You're also really much of a history buff also. And you not only are into the actual science of it, but also the history of it. So, you know, tell us a little bit more about that. I'm so glad you asked because there's been this ongoing controversy since the really the 90s about whether or not doctors should sell skincare products or not. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about that today. But it's interesting if you go back in the history of the profession and look at how skincare has developed in dermatology, you see these repeating patterns. So just like in other forms of history, if we look back, we can see things that played out in the past that are playing out again here. So I'm putting together a lecture right now on the history of this because I'm so fascinated. But it all started in the late 1800s. There was a guy named Erasmus Wilson. And at the time, he was the most famous dermatologist in the world. And he came up with this idea that if we would bathe, maybe that would be healthier for us, for our skin. And that was very controversial at the time. And that was around the time they started opening up some of these bath places where you would go, these spas. So he became very successful with that and came out with his own hair tonic. And he was shunned by the dermatology world worldwide. And it really ruined his career. And I thought that was interesting because it kind of left that space open. And there was another guy who came in named Woodbury. You may have heard of Woodbury Soap. And he was actually a chiropractor. And he lied and said he was a dermatologist and came out with the soap and made a fortune and sold it to Jurgens. So it just was an example of how the Durham world kind of turned their nose up at this guy who was trying to do the right things. Of course, his hair tonic really wasn't efficacious, but at the time he thought it was. 
And then that opened up the space for somebody to come in and pretend they were a dermatologist. So I don't want us to let that happen again. The cosmeceutical market is the fastest growing um, segment of the skincare world because more and more people are wanting advice from their doctors. And we're dermatologists. We're trained on the skin. This is our space. I think we should quit judging people who sell products. And we all need to embrace it and make sure that it's done right in an ethical fashion because we are the ones. So that's kind of my soapbox about this. Mm-hmm. You just mentioned the ethical aspect of selling cosmeceuticals. So what do you mean exactly by that? I think it's unethical not to offer cosmeceutical advice to your patients. Whether you want to sell mm-hmm. or not is your own business. But if we're not going to give our patients information about skincare, where are they going to get it from? They're going to have to get it from someone at CVS or their friend or their sister or a salesperson. And most of that advice is biased and it's just somebody trying to sell them something and not looking at their underlying skin issues and matching it to maybe other medications that they're on and other lifestyle factors. So I feel like when we think as dermatologists that we shouldn't do this, we're leaving our patients out there in the cold to be taken advantage of other people. But in spite of this, you'll see articles, there were lots of them in the early 2000s about whether or not it was ethical to sell products. And then surprisingly, there was a new one in the JAD. I think it was June or July. Another person wrote another article about how they don't think it's ethical to sell. And that article, the recent one in the JAD, basically said that we should declare to our patients our conflict of interest if we sell products. And I don't have a problem with that, but of course, patients know that when you sell products that you are making a profit. So I don't understand why that's an ethical argument. I think that we can easily tell our patients our conflict of interest. But every time one of these articles comes up or anytime I'm lecturing to an audience, there's always somebody that says that we're doctors, we practice medicine, we shouldn't take advantage of our patients by selling them skincare. And that confuses me because cosmeceuticals work. They affect skin health. Uh, We're the experts. I think that every acne regimen works better when you're using the right skincare. So I don't understand why people still have an ethical dilemma about this. Are you seeing the same thing in Dubai? Do you have that same conversation or um, are people as judgmental about that there? No, in Dubai here, they're not as judgmental. But, you know, for me, every time when I give uh, skincare products or anything of that sort, I would tell them why this product would work because of the ingredients that it contains. And now that comes to my question here is what type of products would you want to carry in your practice? The way we do it, I actually work with over 200 doctors to help them sell skincare in their practice. So we analyze their Mm -hmm. practice and look at what the underlying skin types are in that practice. Like, for example, if you have a very young patient population, you might have a lot more acne patients. If you have an older patient Mm -hmm. population, you might have more skin cancer and aging type patients. So we analyze their practice and we figure out what brands would be best and what price points would be best. Um, But the best part is we're collecting all this data from all these practices. And what we're finding is that products $30 or less sell the best. So I have a philosophy that I like to sell the cheapest product that works for that skin type. And I'm very brand agnostic. I don't have brand preferences. I go more by the ingredients. But if you have two different really good barrier repair moisturizers, and one of them is $200 and one of them is $30, you know the patient is going to use the $30 one more 
I think about this with sunscreens a lot. If it's an expensive sunscreen, they're only going to put a little bit on and they're not going to get the right coverage. So I think that we should sell products that we know that work, that are at a price point that patients are actually going to use them. And I think part of that ethical argument people have is when people is that it's, they don't want it to be all about money. And it shouldn't be about making money. It's about getting the right products to the patient. So if you choose wisely by finding brands that are affordable, I think that that's the best way to go. But you see, let, let me turn it around this time, Leslie, and let me tell you, for example, a lot of patients, if I tell them that this is a good product, it's reasonably priced, they look at the price and they say like, hmm, this product is actually quite cheap. And they start questioning whether the product is actually efficacious or not, because they're comparing the prices rather than they're comparing the actual ingredients or the efficacy of that ingredient. How do you go about trying to kind of resolve that problem there, that conflict? That's a great question. In your practice, you might do better selling more expensive products because your patients are wanting the packaging and the story behind it and the marketing behind it. So that's what we do is we go in and we analyze and figure that out. I actually, in my practice, carry two different price points because I have both types of patients. Some want the more expensive things. So I tell my patients that it's like a purse, you know, lots of different brands of purses will carry things for you. Some of them cost $20, some of them cost $10,000, but when it comes down to it, they both carry things. So I think it's up to the patient and the practice what they want to do. So again, I'm brand agnostic. I don't care what price point, what brand, what my goal is, is to help everybody get the right ingredients on their patient's skin, matched to their skin type. And putting them on in the right order, because if you don't put products on in the right order, they all negate each other and make them not work. So there's a lot of science that goes into identifying the skin type, picking out the products, designing the regimen, and then adjusting that regimen every month. Now that comes to me with my other question here. Now, coming up with the type of skin, I've heard you lecture a number of times with regard to the skin typing system. Now, how do you go about doing this? I mean, what's the algorithm that you're using? Or is it just a questionnaire and you're seeing, you know, the number of points that are based here? You know, Bob, if you don't mind me asking, what is your secret when it comes to trying to typify the actual skin? So when you first look at the typing system, it looks very simple. It's 16 skin types based on four main barriers to skin health. So in other words, you patients either may be dehydrated or not inflammation or not, uneven pigmentation or not, or aging factors or not. So those are the four things and you mix those and you get 16 types. So for example, I'm a dry, sensitive, non-pigmented wrinkle prone, which means I need anti-aging, I need barrier repair, I need anti-inflammatories. So it seems super easy on the surface, but actually it's way more complicated than that. So I've spent the last decade, well actually two decades, developing a questionnaire that accurately identifies all these factors that matter when you're designing a skincare regimen. And the so just to focus on one little part is, for example, oily skin. Oily skin is really based on whether you make sebum or not. And there's all kinds of studies to show that over 80% of people are wrong if you ask them if they have oily skin or not. They're bad at judging their own sebum production. It varies in humidity and it varies with all kinds of things. So they don't know. So we spent years validating a questionnaire with a sebum meter that we know that answering these questions will accurately determine if you make a lot of sebum or not. 
So that sounds simple, but it's very important if we're going to be using a questionnaire that we give the accurate diagnosis. So we have over 300,000 people's data from all around the world that have validated the questionnaire. So now I know that anyone can use my quiz and accurately identify the skin type. And so that okay. makes a big difference. And then we can predetermine from that what the regimens are going to be, what the instructions are going to be. You just mentioned during the whole answer here with regard to the skin regimen is that you've also trying to layer certain products. What do you mean by product layering? So what I mean is sometimes you'll hear patients say they put something on and they wait five minutes and then they put the next thing on and mm -hmm. they wait five minutes because they're worried about the products inactivating each other. Well, that is not necessary if the regimen is designed properly. So for example, let's say you're going to use a vitamin C serum. And we all know that vitamin C serums absorb better at a pH of 2 or 2.5. So if you use a normal cleanser, the pH is usually about 10 prior to your vitamin C, your vitamin C is not going to penetrate very well. No matter how expensive it is, it's not going to get in. Now, if you use a glycolic acid cleanser and you lower the pH and then you put the vitamin C on, it's going to penetrate better. So when you design the regimens, every step needs to make the next step penetrate better and the next step work better. So there's a lot of science that goes into that with ingredients and which ones work best for each other. I like to use vitamin C as an example because that's a very uh, straightforward example. But another one that most people are surprised at is hyaluronic acid. So lots of people are using topical hyaluronic acid, and it actually is a penetration enhancer. It makes things go in the skin better. So if you give an acne patient an acne medication such as benzoyl peroxide and then a retinoid at night, and then you're giving them a moisturizer with hyaluronic acid in it, you're going to increase the side effects that they have. So that's not a great choice for an acne patient. So that's what layering is. It's where you put that hyaluronic acid in the regimen to increase the penetration of the other things. So this is what I've been working on for about the last decade is figuring all of this out. All right. So, let me, you know, we're winding down now. I've got two very important questions. One that relates to what you were saying the whole time is that what advice would you give to dermatologists wanting to retail skincare? So somebody just started or somebody who has a practice but has never incorporated selling skincare in their whole practice, what is the advice that you would give these dermatologists? Well, first of all, they're free to contact me on LinkedIn if they want to or email and I can guide them. But I think that don't carry too many products. You really need to figure out what your patient population is. And I can help you figure out how many products to sell. Most doctors buy too many things and they end up with all this inventory mm -hmm. that they don't need. So it's not a, something that you let a salesperson convince you overnight. You need to put some thought into it. Then you need to have a methodology so that all of your staff stays trained and understands what products are going to be used for which patients. So if the patient asks a question, they may ask five different people in your office, they should get the exact same answer. So streamlining all of that will make a big difference. And if you use the right skincare, you're going to see improved efficacy in your patients, whether it's psoriasis or eczema or acne or rosacea, all those things need the right cleanser and the right moisturizer and the right sunscreen, as well as the drugs that you're already writing. To summarize what you're saying is to simplify the range that they have and to also understand the science on why actually these products work. So that's the gist of it. Right. So the way we do it is the patient takes a questionnaire in the waiting room and it determines their skin type. And then I press a button and software generates a regimen that's already thought about all of this. And my staff looks at that regimen, 
click save, it prints out and the patient gets everything, but it's super easy. But in the background, all of these different scientific factors have been taken into account. And then that way in our practice, everybody's doing everything the same way and answering the questions the same. Okay, now this comes to my final question, given the current situation globally, and you know, I'm speaking to you from Dubai, you're currently in Miami. A lot of our patients now are really going into the whole telemedicine and telehealth thing. And they've been encouraged, given the current situation, to do that. So what is the role of skincare in telemedicine? How important is this? Is it possible for us to actually give advice to our patients on skincare uh, using telemedicine? Yes, I was just on the phone earlier. and We have 15 practices that are going to be using my system. I'm so excited because that is the reason that it took me so long to validate the questionnaire is we need to be able to give the right skin type, even if you can't see the patient and you don't have a cancel camera, you don't have a sebum meter, all you have is, you know, being able to talk to them. So with telemedicine, it's very easy to administer the quiz, find out the skin type, and then use that to give them the regimen advice. Now, with telemedicine, I would recommend the people that they see there that have another follow-up consult at every month because patients need that cheerleading. Studies show that after four weeks, they drop off and are not compliant. So my other research interest is compliance. So when you do your telemedicine consult and before you get off, you should book them for their next visit in four weeks and then at that time adjust their regimen. So you never should have the patient think that these are the products they're going to be on for the rest of their life because actually you want to correct different defects and then up and tweak the products and then see them again. So for example, if you've hydrated their skin, then maybe they don't need as heavy of a barrier repair moisturizer and you can change that out with time. Depending on how compliant they are and, and what the weather is in their area, there's all kinds of different things that make you adjust it. But I think that consumers and patients have been taught you're going to get these products, you're going to use them forever, and that's just really not the case. But telemedicine gives us, during this time period where we're all stuck at home, a great way to reach out and give this information to our patients in a way that is scientific and using the questionnaire, you can do it. Even if you can't see very well on the screen, it doesn't matter because we know that the questionnaire is valid. Leslie, that was a phenomenal wrap-up here of what you just explained earlier during this whole podcast. I would like to thank you so much for being on and being a part of this. You were fantastic. You were great. I wish that you are at home right now, safe and healthy. Do you have anything else to say, Leslie? I'm safe from everything except baking and sugar and trying not to gain weight. But as far as the virus, I'm safe. Thank you so much. Take care, and hopefully we'll have you in other future podcasts. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app, New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcast. We hope you enjoyed these new options for listening to dialogues and the increased content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.